มาสัมพุทธัสสะองค์มณีปัญมีองค์ so Tenzin and I we live up in the woods we came down from the from the mountains this morning it's one of the reasons we know each other is because we're neighbors up in the Mountains of Santa Cruz, living in the redwoods. We also know each other from uh, living in New Zealand together. Uh, many years, we we were both there and and saw each other regularly. <clears throat> so today we're going to talk about uh, our respective traditions. Uh, talk about the similarities. Talk about the differences. Maybe give it a bit of a background, a bit of historical background, depending on where um, people are at. We can give a, a less or more detail. Hmm? How familiar are people with the forest tradition or the Vajrayana tradition? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So we'll kind of gauge. How we approach things, uh, depending on um, you know where the audience is at. <clears throat> so we tend to teach extemporaneously, you know, <laughs> responding to the specific uh, situation and people that are in the room. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the uh, the way today came about. Actually, last year Achan and I were invited to teach a. I think it turned out to be like three and a half day, four day retreat <clears throat> together at Vajrapani Institute, which is where I live in the Santa Cruz Mountains next door to uh, Achan's Hermitage. And um, our friend, our old friend Gil Fronstal, invited us one day to lunch at his new, the guiding teacher of this center, at his new uh, retreat place in Scotts Valley, just to tour us around and check it out. And he heard that we were doing this four-day retreat, and I think on the basis of that, he decided to invite us to come and ask Steve to organize that for us to come in one day. And last year we had four days and didn't run out of things to say or do or talk about. It was very interesting. Um, I found I learned so much about the Thai forest tradition, I think I thought that there would be a lot more differences between our two traditions than it turned out that there were. I, one of my memories of that time was one of us would start talking about a topic. We decided, oh, do you want to do a thing where like you have an hour and 15 minutes and then I have the next hour and 15 minutes? Or should we just sort of jam, you know, and kind of go back and forth? And we're like, no, we know, we've known each other for years. Let's just, we can do this, just freestyle. And so sometimes we'd have a topic and one of us would start talking about it and then turn to the other one to go, okay, what's your view? And we'd go, yeah, pretty much, yeah, that's just like that. So I was, yeah, it was very interesting to me to find out how much more similarity than difference. And I think that's one of the beauties of having an event like this because historically in Asia, this never would have happened. You know, historically... Tibetan, culturally Tibetan nuns before 1959, I'm sure never would have had an opportunity to meet a practitioner of the Thai forest tradition and exchange views, you know. So that's one of the beauties, I think, of kind of Dharma as it's coming to these countries where we're 
able to meet each other, practice together, talk to each other. Some of the views that were held historically about these great gaps between the different traditions, I'm finding just, you know, aren't, aren't as true as, as one would be led to believe from some of the historical texts and things. So that's kind of what we want to do today, just sort of a little synopsis. We also realize that people have questions that we would never predict. So we're not only going to have a chance for you to just raise your hand, but since sometimes people are shy, we've got a little fishbowl with pieces of paper in it. And I think during the break, maybe we'll put it next to the tissues just on that lead right there. And so during the breaks, if you're shy or if, you know, whatever reason you'd rather write down your question, we'll try and deal with those as well. <clears throat> Uh, Tenzin has one request. Please do not ask if we wear underwear. <laughs> no, special underwear. Right, just, let's just get that out of the Carol, way. Carol, <laughs> mother knows about okay. this. One time I was giving a talk, and they, yeah, they said Mormons and Sikhs apparently have special underwear. So somebody raised their hand and said, do you wear special underwear? And I'm like, that's a really personal question. <laughs> right? like, like, where does that come from? And they're like, oh no, you know, these other religious traditions. So yeah, just don't ask about our underwear. Anything else is fair game. <laughs> Why do we shave our heads? That usually comes up. We That's can easy. predict that one. But yes, yeah, so, sometimes we were talking on the car on the way here. You know, sometimes the whole uh, idea of what is it like to be a Buddhist monk or nun living outside of Asia, or even being a Buddhist monk or uh, you know American Buddhist monk or nun living in Asia, uh, you know, there's questions we wouldn't predict because it's our life. But sometimes people have things that they're curious about. So that's just throw it open to whatever whatever it is you're curious about. Do you want to so, talk about history a little bit? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> last night, we're, I'm living up in the forest in a tent. <laughs> and <laughs> last night in the middle of the night, some animal jumped on me. <laughs> a small one, and not a like small, a well, it felt <laughs> Yeah, I didn't realize it was small until after it jumped on me. But I was dreaming, and then suddenly it was like, <sighs> and... Uh, Turns out a mouse was making a nest in my bag and then decided, for some reason, decided to jump right on me in my sleeping bag in the middle of the night. So that, so, and then before that, one of the people that I was staying with down there was starting up his car at midnight to try to keep warm. It was cold <laughs> up there, which was fine, but unfortunately, that meant I had to get up and go around and see what was going on. So I'm a bit tired today. I'm going to sleep. Go easy on him. Not, so. you know, any, any really difficult questions. So we thought we'd begin by just kind of talking a little bit about the historical context of the two traditions that we represent to just sort of set the set the context. And some of this you all may know. There might be Buddhist historians in the room that know a whole lot more than we do, but like, why is it that there's these different traditions in, in Buddhism that kind of evolved with slightly different styles and so forth? We thought to just begin by setting the context a little bit. So just as a basic overview, you know, originally, of course, there were no s schools of Buddhism. 
There was just uh, the Buddha teaching uh, an, uh, initially small group of disciples which uh, quickly grew and as far as we know from historical context by the time he passed away after teaching for 45 years then uh, he had uh, monastic communities of hundreds of thousands and then uh, or at least tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of followers so uh, it was already well on its way to being a very large um, very large tradition you know it had a lot of momentum going at the time the Buddha passed away but at at that time there were no well I mean even at the time you had Devadatta which was the Buddha's cousin kind of trying to create a different a bit of a schism but uh, there were no distinct schools yet then gradually over periods of time certain emphasis uh, became uh, uh, certain styles of teaching became more emphasized you know, in different groups. And even in the time of the Buddha, you had that. Uh, some of the great uh, disciples of the Buddha, for example, uh, Sariputta, Venerable Sariputta, was known to be foremost in wisdom. And so uh, those people who were very inclined to, to uh, approach the Dhamma from a sharp, refined intellect would kind of gravitate towards him. Uh, Venerable Mahamogalana was uh, foremost in psychic powers. So those people who had very deep samadhi and a more samatha approach would, would gravitate towards him. And they, they would work together as a team to kind of bring groups of people to uh, full enlightenment. And then you had uh, other teachers such as Mahakasapa, who was foremost in ascetic practices. And so uh, those who would gravitate towards uh, practicing very intensely uh, would kind of gravitate to him as uh, their inspiring example. So even in the time of the Buddha, you would have different emphasis, uh, ways of approaching the Dhamma. And then gradually, you know, we're talking about over periods of hundreds of years, and certain uh, groups tended to uh, form, sometimes with geographical uh, uh, separation, sometimes um, they would all be living in the same monastery, but they would tend to have different emphasis. And approximately about 500 years after the Buddha passed away, uh, a group uh, which we now know as the Mahayana, you know, gra gradually came into, um, came into their own. Right? And uh, some of, as that became more formalized, then that's where we start to see the first real distinctions, um, both uh, in the suttas. Yeah? And the, even at the time, even at that time, you would still get the people living in the same monastery. Sometimes you would have Mahayana, Theravada, mm -hmm. both in the same uh, monastery in the same area, um, because as long as they were following the Vinaya, which is the monastic code, then everyone lived together quite comfortably. Um, but increasingly, uh, theoretically, differences began to become much more distinct. Uh, terms began to be used differently. Um, uh, aspirations, ideals uh, began to change a bit uh, and this then really became more solidified you know, over periods of many hundreds of years and especially when, when then Buddhism went to for example China at the time that Chinese pilgrims were coming to India 
the type of Buddhism that they mm. brought back to China was Mahayana Buddhism, because that was, mm. and then from that, that became very distinct, which then led to uh, Japanese Zen Buddhism, etc. And then when Tibet, when way uh, down the line, about 700 AD, I think, is when the first uh, practitioners from Tibet started to come down to India, or, or Indian teachers started to go to Tibet, then uh, they were bringing Vajrayana Buddhism uh, to Tibet. And this was a, a gradual, a gradual progression or just a difference in styles. Mm. So that's as a general, very general historic overview. Of course, it's much more detailed than that. So these days, we, we generally talk about the, the Theravada, which Theravada aspires to go back to the original teachings of the Buddha, what as far as we can determine are the original teachings of the Buddha. And it takes that as the basis. Um, Mahayana uh, has uh, uh, an, additional, uh, an additional set of sutras. Uh, typically in Theravada we talk about sutta, S-U-T-T-A, you know, as uh, the, the, the Dhamma talks, the recordings of the Dhamma talks of the Buddha. In uh, Mahayana tradition, more of the uh, Sanskrit based, so they talk about sutras. Mm -hmm. So that's another way to uh, kind of distinguish. If we're talking about sutras, then that will be of the Mahayana tradition. Do you want to say a bit about yeah, uh, just the historical development of the Mahayana and Vajrayana sure, yeah. in India? And, and as Achan just said, you know, there's different, different mm. terminology for the, these two kind of main branches. And then, of course, in, in different countries, different traditions evolve. You'll sometimes hear this sort of old-fashioned words, which aren't, you know, mm. preferred really now of Hinayana and Mahayana, and those are kind of bad words. <laughs> so better, because they literally mean like lesser and greater vehicles, so mm. it's really quite disparaging. Um, doesn't, sorry. doesn't. Oh, okay. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, no, But go just ahead. to clarify, um, uh, Mahayana means uh, the greater vehicle, mm -hmm. which is, I think, a polite, very nice term, mm. polite. But... Uh, Sometimes in the older texts, Buddhist texts, you find the term Hinayana. Um, so Hinayana, the word Hina in Pali refers to, it means base, vulgar, um, mm. uh, it doesn't mean lesser. Mm. Um, uh, if a lesser would be Chula, mm. which would be okay, that would be fine. Um, so but it's even it, worse yeah, than lesser, no, it's, <laughs> is what you're it's, saying. Yeah, no, it, yeah. it was, it was it's a term that was devised as mm. a derogatory put-down. Mm, mm, mm. So there mm. never was yeah. a tradition or a sect uh. called the Hinayana. You know, so mm. we, are the, we are the base vulgar ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we are the lowest of the low. So that's a bad so, word, <clears throat> so don't say that word. So that, that term was intended to be a derogatory put-down mm. um, as I'm because there was sectarian division. Mm. Right? Mm. So that's why we don't use that term. Uh, Theravada means the mm. way of the elders. Mm. And then for a while, you know, there's, so there was different terminology that was sort of tried out as, as an alternative to this like bad word. 
For a while, people were using Northern School and Southern School, which was kind of okay, just because it sort of describes the geography. The Theravada spread initially to Sri Lanka, and then from Sri Lanka throughout like Thailand, Burma, parts of Vietnam, whereas the, the Northern School, you know, kind of went to China, Korea, Japan, Tibet. Nowadays, and I really like this, and, and Anchan just alluded to it, His Holiness the Dalai Lama recently wrote a book called One Teacher, Many Traditions, I think is the name of it, something like that, where he really goes into a lot of detail about just the, the distinctions between the two traditions. And he prefers the terminology, the Pali tradition and the Sanskrit t tradition, because then that really goes back to you know, the, the original text, the language of the original text, and it doesn't have all these connotations like some of the other language does. And even when you talk about northern and southern tradition, well, now we've got Australia, Europe, and North America. So where does that fit in? So and New even, Zealand. And New Zealand. <laughs> not to leave out. Last, but definitely not least. You know, so even to talk about northern and southern school used to be sort of historically accurate. So people have been trying with this language. And lately, nowadays, I've adopted His Holiness the Dalai Lama's Sanskrit tradition, Pali tradition, because it really refers to kind of the root text that the tradition came from. So just a little bit of more kind of detail about the Tibetan tradition. Somebody, uh, the other day somebody was giving a talk and they said incorrectly that the Tibetan tradition uh, began in China right? And maybe they're saying that because politically now, you know, Tibet was invaded by China. But actually in Tibet, the tradition came directly from India into Tibet. And it was during a period of time of the flourishing of these great monastic universities where Buddhism really got established in Tibet. So sometimes His Holiness the Dalai Lama talks about the Nalanda tradition and he refers to Tibetan Buddhism. There was a couple of huge monastic tradition or monastic uh, mo monasteries, several in and around the area of Bihar and in kind of the central Ganges Valley. One was Nalanda Monastery, one was Vikramashila, um, several other ones. Odantapuri was another one nearby in that area. And between the years of about 800 and about 1200, these monasteries were really flourishing. And as Achan said, monastics of all the different philosophical traditions lived together, studied together, debated. There was this incredible kind of flourishing of these commentarial tradition, you know, of study of the sutras, and then scholars would write commentaries. So this was the kind of milieu that was transmitted then to Tibet during the flourishing of these, of these monasteries. So it was this very rich philosophical tradition. A lot of these Indian commentaries we still study in the Tibetan tradition. Master Shantideva that lived around 700 wrote this classic text called the Bodhicaryavatara, the guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life. That's one of the main texts that we study. Also, you know, a lot of these masters that lived in those great monasteries. And also around the same time, there were um, kind of the flourishing of what we call the Mahasiddhas, or the great kind of yogic masters too, many of whom had been great masters in the monasteries and then left the monastery 
in order to pursue a more yogic practice life, living out in the forest, begging for meals and so forth. And in fact, the biography of, uh, of uh, you know, many of these masters, w- one of the masters in his biography, they say that he had a vision, this, uh, you know, uh, an old hag, a wise woman vision, you know, kind of came to him and said, as he was studying, and he was a great master philosopher, and she said, do you understand the words of the text or the meaning? And he said, oh, I understand the words. And then she started laughing, and she was like so happy. This is the the great master Naropa, the great Indian master. And then he thought, oh, that made her really happy, so I'll tell her I understand the meaning too. He goes, and I understand the meaning. And she starts crying, and she's like, no, you don't. It hasn't gone from the head to the heart at all. Go off and be a yogi in the forest. You know? So this is kind of both of these lineages were transmitted to Tibet, this philosophical lineage with all of these amazing commentaries and also this sort of yogic lineage that gave us the great master Milarepa, one of the most beloved masters in the Tibetan tradition. And I think the reason he's so beloved is his biography talks about all the struggles that he went through you know, in his crisis of faith in the dark night of the soul and his suicidal thoughts. And, you know, we can read that and we go, yeah, that's more what it's like. Some of the biographies of these great masters are like, oh, then they met their master and then went off to the paradise of the Dakinis or something. And you're like, God, that's not happening for me at all. Like, I'm just struggling with like my crazy mind. So we read the biography of somebody like Milarepa and then we feel a little reassured. Oh, he had <laughs> doubts and crisis and fought with his teacher and left and then came back. And oh, that's kind of more like my story. So anyway, just a little background of, of where that comes from. So, so sometimes you'll hear His Holiness the Dalai Lama refer to the Nalanda tradition. And so that's kind of what he's referring to is this period of time that these great masters were you know, writing commentaries on the text and so forth. Yeah. So in the last 2,600 years, there's been relatively uh, little opportunity for the various traditions to interact. <clears throat> from the, the initial time where it was thriving in, in India from approximately 500 uh, BC to about... 1200 or so AD, uh, at which time it was uh, wiped out. But by that time, um, it had been gradually developing and um, spreading, you know, peacefully, peacefully spreading all throughout Asia. And so depending on the, the period on which it went to a specific country, that was the, the style of Buddhism that was um, transmitted. Uh, for example, Sri Lanka was one of the earliest. Mm-hmm. So then for uh, over 2,000 years now, Sri Lanka has been a Theravada country. And, uh, and then later on, you know, China and Tibet. Now geographically, they were so distinct. I mean, these places were, were separated by um, uh, rivers, mountain chains, I mean, great distances. And even though people would travel, there would be pilgrims traveling, uh, there wasn't a lot of interaction. So it was very easy for the different traditions to feel like, 
we've got the real thing, mm -hmm. and these other traditions are somehow getting it wrong, right? And this is uh, partly human nature, and and uh, partly due to um, you know every everyone is very dedicated to their specific. Uh, way of practice, and this is and this is what the different traditions knew. And you still find that amongst mm -hmm. the generation of our Asian teachers. I mean, this is part of what is unique about this period of history. I mean, it's completely unprecedented in 2,600 years that we have all of these Buddhist traditions living side by side, um, whether lay practitioners or monastic practitioners, and and it becomes untenable to hold on to these very fixed views of, of others. Unless, unless people just continue to live in a, a bubble. And you, you do find that. You know, there are, there are you know, I think especially of our, you know, there's a generation mm -hmm. of our Asian uh, mm -hmm. teachers who we, we hold with the highest regard. But uh, it's even if they come to the West, it's still difficult for them to fully appreciate or empathize with other traditions. Mm -hmm. Whereas, like Tenzin and I, I mean, we both grow up in the U.S. and we know the same rock songs. Still remember those yeah, lyrics, you know, in 1975, you know, which will be part of our jamming and riffing. <laughs> <laughs> We'll give a performance we'll do, after gonna, the day. We're going to do the, we're going to do the Dhamma slow jam maybe a bit yeah. later. <laughs> just do the back and be like. Not yet. Just not come yet. In. Oh, just warm them up yeah, first. Just going to just on. sit. <laughs> stressed and just sit down. So we have, you know, we come from the same culture, and yet we've ended up in different uh, traditions. But it, it's very easy then for us to empathize in a way that even just one generation uh, senior to us finds it much more difficult, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, you get, you get senior Tibetan monks together with senior Thai monks, and of course, they're all smiles and polite. Um, as if with it their ever translators. Even happens. Yeah. Like yeah. it mostly but, doesn't even yeah, happen. Yeah, if it ever even yeah. if it happens. But then privately they'll tend to go back and they'll, they'll say, Well, they were okay, but you know, we've got the real <laughs> it's too bad, it's too bad they don't have the real Dhamma. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like in New Zealand when I, uh, I I love I traveled in Tibet and I love Tibetan uh, mm -hmm. culture and uh, and Tibetan teachers. But in New Zealand, I, I visited a monastery up in the north mm -hmm. and, you know, paid respects to the Tibetan teachers there. And, and he had his <laughs> translator and, and he said, he looked at me and said, Vajrayana, Mahayana, Hinayana. And so that part didn't need translating, I think I understood. <laughs> and that was kind of the beginning of the conversation, so I thought, oh, oh where okay, do we go right, from thank here? You for, okay. Thank you for, thank you for yeah. that empathy. So, and so we this had is... Actually, I was going to mention last weekend, because last weekend there was the uh, 
what is, the opening ceremony? What did we call it? Blessing ceremony of Insight Santa Cruz. Betsy was there. And Bob Stahl, who we both know, who's the guiding teacher there now, invited both of us and a couple of other monastics and other none from the Theravadan tradition and then the local uh, p- priest from the Santa Cruz Zen Center. And so we all did our respective blessings and then did a blessing together. And on the way home in the car, Achan and I were talking about it. And he, he said, you know, this is American Buddhism that we all do this thing together. He's like, it's already happening. You know, sometimes people say, well, what's Buddhism going to look like in America? It looks like this, because he said, that never would have happened. And I was thinking too, yeah, totally never, you know, would that have happened for, as Achan says, just our own teachers wouldn't have actually done something like that all together chanting together like that having all the different traditions at the insight center which kind of goes back to the Theravada tradition it was just this beautiful and then there were like five or six insight teachers there with all of us monastics so it was it was just a beautiful example of like what it's starting to look like and yeah 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 for decades people have well Wherever Buddhism has gone historically, it will take on the flavor of the local culture. And so that's why you get such distinctions in, in ways of behavior or, you know, the difference between Zen Buddhism and Sri Lankan Buddhism is, is, is quite distinct. But um, and then people say, well, what's American Buddhism going to look like? You know, as if we should try to create it. But the, the reality is... It, this is it. I mean, we are creating it as we go. And mm-hmm. it is already very different in the sense mm-hmm. than, than any specific Asian country. You know, it, this would probably never happen. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, we can have some questions now that we've kind of gone through the history. Sure it's on and speaking of life, it's an uh, ice cream cone. <laughs> okay, is it? Is it on? I can't, I mean, I can hear my own voice. I, is it on? Yeah. Okay. Um, Thank you. This is such a wonderful overview. Um, I, the last thing you said, I noticed some agitation arising in me around the comment about the Asian teachers and the Mm -hmm. sense of, well, they don't have the real Dharma or what the teacher said to you about, you're, you're on the bottom of the stack, buddy. Because I wonder, as, as senior prac- practitioners as you are, how do you, um, and this might be a really naive American question, but how do you reconcile, that just seems to me to conflict with the fundamental teachings, like whether it's universal bodhicitta or pure perception or whether it's interdependence, like whatever the teaching is, the notion that, oh, this is a better way, that's a worse way, that sort of discriminating mind and that judgment doesn't mm. seem to me to, I don't know, in some way accord with fundamental teachings. Yeah, so I, I just, I wonder how you as a practitioner uh, come clear with that. And again, maybe that's just an American lens, but that, that's what popped up for me hearing that. Yeah, partly it has to do with uh, simply not being aware of other traditions. And, and mm-hmm. you can maintain a certain perception, whether it's self-perception or self a perception about the lifestyle and tradition that we lead is 
is, and if we don't have contact with others, then that perception never really gets challenged. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, the, in Theravada countries, they think that they've got the real cookies, you know, because we go back to the original teachings, we're the real thing, and everything that came after that is kind of a, a degeneration, whereas uh, the Mahayanas feel like, oh, those Theravans are still stuck in this, these old teachings where, you know, we've improved upon it, and it's, it's much better now, and, and, and those poor, lowly Theravans, they can't really get it together, and they're still stuck in their selfishness. And then the Vajrayana up in Tibet, you know, pre-modern times, or, uh, ha could very easily maintain this feeling of, well, we are literally on top. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and even people who reach high stages of attainment, mm -hmm. On a personal level, they would never be, I mean, the whole idea of, of self-importance or oneself being greater or lesser than others completely disappears. Otherwise, you're not enlightened. I mean, this is like basic definition of, mm. of, uh, of stages of enlightenment is you overcome that self-conceit or even being able to compare oneself with another as being lesser, greater, or even equal to, right? That all disappears. However, the, the texts themselves might be much more, a bit more um, rigid, mm -hmm. right? Or, you know, but in addition to enlightened masters, you know, the, the greater percentage of practitioners are people who maybe are, are, are scholars or people with uh, lesser level of attainment and mm -hmm. so human nature is still very much prone to uh, attachment and and even attachment to the teachings and you know, we want to mm -hmm. it, if we're going to dedicate our lives to something we we want to dedicate our lives to the best we want to feel like we're we're dedicating ourselves to the best thing mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. then from that we there tends to be an attachment to those teachings, and then there's something that's different. Um, there tends to be the idea that, well, if it's if it's different than what I believe to be the best, then it must be wrong or lesser. Yeah, and <laughs> I, I I just wanted to add too because I I know exactly what you're saying, and you know I I think I've gone through periods of feeling sort of disillusioned sometimes with teachers because they sort of don't see things the way I think is the right way to see it or whatever and gone like, whoa, how could they have that attitude that's so narrow-minded or this or that and the other. And for me, what I've had to realize is, you know, like Achan says, a lot of these masters are still very much a product of their culture. So they have, they might have incredible wisdom in terms of the Dharma, incredible compassion, like all of these great qualities and still you know, are a product of their culture and what they've learned, whether they've learned, you know, and it goes both ways too, because a lot of times the, the you know, from Theravada they say, oh, you guys aren't even Buddhists, like your Vajrayana isn't even Buddhism, like what are you, you just made this stuff up. So it kind of goes both ways. I mean, I'll give another example, which I've, you know, is, is kind of an example of, of something that I, you know, we, we struggle with the, with these masters. I have a, a friend and student who's transgender, and so he wrote a letter to our teacher, our Tibetan teacher, about 
his transition and was asking some question or something. And so our teacher, he doesn't know what being transgender is. Like he's this old Tibetan Lama. Like he has no idea, right? Like how would he know? Nobody's ever explained. Like he doesn't read the newspaper. He doesn't know what's going on with the North Carolina bathroom bill. So, you know, it's like off the radar completely. So he writes to my student and says this very traditional thing. If you want to be a man, pray hard to be reborn as a man next life. That's the way to become a man, which is just the standard line. And, of course, the student's super upset, so I had to just sort of deal with that and say, it's his culture. He doesn't get it. Nobody sat down and explained to him. He doesn't understand the politics. He doesn't understand the social justice. You know, just say, yes, he's this incredible being that teaches Dharma so well and is a, totally a product of his culture and just doesn't understand this one thing. So for me, it's helpful. I mean... It's hard to ask people to compartmentalize, and it's hard for me to compartmentalize, and sometimes I have to, to realize, well, I'm a product of my culture too, and all these social justice issues that are super important for me, that are just way important, other people don't care about it at all, and I can't somehow make them wrong. I'm a product of my hippie, revolutionary, you know, progressive culture with my values, so... You know what I mean? So it's, it's just a little bit compartmentalizing, but in a way that's just, I think, help, helpful and, and not disillusioning. And then you just go, okay, this person doesn't understand about being transgender, but he, wow, he totally knows about compassion. And I can learn so much about that. I just need to realize that because of his culture, there's other things he doesn't understand. And I think this, you know, the, the kind of history and... This keeps falling off kind of the divisiveness around, you know, we're better than you, like Achan says, you know, part of it's just human nature. And a big part of, I think, is ignorance, that they've never sat down and have these conversations. Because like I said, I mean, even though Achan and I met each other like 10 years ago and we've been friends, but it was last year when we taught together that I learned so much more about his tradition. Like we hang out, but we don't sit there and go, what's your view of selflessness? Oh, wow, that's not so different than ours, even though my texts say there's like this huge gap, right? So it's just, it's just education and information, you know, really can help. Yeah. Okay, is it okay if we take some questions? Yeah, yeah. good. Yeah, because this is good. Yeah, I have actually kind of a similar question because uh, when you were giving um, your historical view, uh, you used several times the word um, empathy and talking about a different tradition. And I was wondering if you can give your definition of empathy because going into this question, like in, in my mind, and I'm, I'm kind of new to Buddhism just a few years, I feel that I'm... I'm actually learning about empathy and compassion for all beings. And so like hearing that two traditions cannot empathize with one another, I, then it makes me feel like, what is empathy? Empathy is the, or at least I would define it, is the attempt to, to try to see reality from another person's perspective or another tradition's perspective. 
which really goes against our grain as human nature. You know, we tend to, we have our perceptions, we project them out, and this literally becomes our reality without thinking that other people are doing the same thing and they're perceiving and projecting possibly very different perceptions and neither of those perceptions in and of themselves are our <clears throat> our ultimate reality right right neither of those perceptions are better or worse than the other um, they're both based on whatever information and causes or emotions or cultural conditioning that those people have and if we don't challenge our perceptions then we just tend to think if I perceive it this way that's reality and therefore it must be real it's right it's true I can see it right here in front of my eyes and if someone says no that's not the way it is then they must be wrong right so empathy is making that effort to say well if they perceive it differently if they're practicing differently living differently um, how about if I try to see it from their perspective now we, c we can never do that a hundred percent but making that effort uh, to, tr to to try to see something from another viewpoint, it makes a huge difference in getting along in harmony. Hmm. So I guess that that's the definition that I was kind of thinking. Um, I, I think it goes, you know, along her question is, I guess I feel a little lost because um, first I've only studied in the Inside Meditation Center here, like nowhere else. Um, and I've learned to actually do this, what you're describing, empathizing with different people. Mm -hmm. And so seeing you two, which, you know, you seem to be great friends and totally empathetic towards one another. <laughs> but I'm hearing you talking about, in general, mm -hmm. the context of, you know, those groups. And... Um, I'm kind of puzzled. I think it, I think it's a process. I'll, you know, when you were talking, I was thinking of, of a, another example. I've just started uh, volunteering with this group in San Jose called the Islamic Networks Group, and they've been in existence since like the mid '90s. And what they do, their main thing is sending Muslim speakers out to schools, corporations, hospitals just to inform people about Islam, right? Even long before, like, this rampant Islamophobia. And then about, I think, 12 years ago, they started an interfaith speakers bureau. So I'm just training to be part of their interfaith speakers bureau because sometimes the schools... In fact, I went to a boys' prep school in San Jose the other day to be part of this interfaith panel. And their main thing, and it, it really struck me in their mission statement was... They, they were saying that kind of their main mission is they think that face-to-face -face encounters do, does more to break down stereotypes and misinformation than anything else, right? So that's what they do and that's what they're doing because it's so easy to hold these stereotypes when you've never met a Muslim or you've never met a Thai forest tradition, per, you know. So I think it's slowly, slowly, the more we encounter each other, the more we have these dialogues, the more we have these 
conversations just like the Islamic Networks group is trying to do in the Bay Area and around the U.S. Just face-to-face encounters, I think. And that takes time. Like Buddhism in the United States is, you know, very recent. I mean, the first were some Japanese masters that came kind of early in the century and Zen sort of established first and now the other traditions are establishing... So it's still new that we're actually having these face-to-face encounters with each other and it's already breaking down a lot of the stereotypes, a lot of the judgment, a lot of the misconceptions. So I think that's, I mean, to me that's the answer. It's just a very personal answer of, you know, like meet a Muslim and speak to a Muslim and your view will change and your stereotype can't survive the encounter and I think it's the same thing for our traditions as well. Sometimes um, it depends on who you meet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, there are, I can, I can, there yeah. are Theravadans and Tibetan masters, if they, if they did meet, they would just reinforce each other's perceptions of each other. Yeah. You know, and so that, that happens as well. Mm. Yeah, so I was, I was, it made me think when you said that face to face, do you think that there is, a way to um, increase this empathy without the face-to-face meeting through actually the practice. That's a really, yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, we definitely can just theoretically, right, have that perspective taking and just try and go outside our own limited kind of narrow-minded view. So yeah, I think even theoretically, I mean, I was just kind of thinking, I think it just really automatically happens whether you're intending to do it or not through these face-to-face encounters. But for sure, if you're willing, I think it's the willingness is the biggest step. And like Atran says, it's a little bit human nature. My team's the best team and my team's better. I mean, it's a little bit human nature. And so even to be willing to challenge yourself in those views. And I think people, I mean, I don't know, I'm not a psychologist. I think sometimes that kind of holding to your team being the best actually comes from insecurity and your own doubt that the path is right for you. I think the more secure you are that your path is the right one just for you personally, the more open you are to hearing other people's views. I think it's the the more insecure we are, the more we have to say, my team is the best team. I mean, it's ignorance too, but just psychologically, whereas I find, if you're just sure, it's not saying my way is the best way for everybody, but I'm really, I'm so comfortable in Tibetan Buddhism. Like for me, it just suits me really well. It's my path. It's great. And from there, I can learn from so many different traditions and read very widely and get inspiration from... Because it doesn't threaten me at all. I think it's from that stance of feeling a little bit insecure about your tradition, then the willingness to open to the other ones. I don't know. That's part of it too, I think, in just in terms of human nature. Any psychologist in the room might be able to also just me. you know to your point if if people are practicing correctly, then the the attachment to to all the things that that form our illusion of an ego will gradually dissolve, and this is the thing which prevents us from empathizing so naturally 
naturally we begin to become more sensitive to others. Naturally we start to recognize uh, the difficulties or the pain of other people, whereas before we were much more just kind of blinded to that because we're so self-involved. And, and as that begins to drop away we get a bit, then we start to notice, oh, these other people around us too, and maybe mm -hmm. they're suffering too, and mm -hmm. maybe that's why they're in a bad mood is because they've just had something really difficult happen and then, and then naturally empathy and compassion starts to grow. And then from that, um, that tends to, to go out into other traditions. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. um, we, should, we should break. Break maybe soon. after this question. Yeah. yeah, we'll take a break after this other question. And maybe soon. If yeah. you were planning to address this during the day anyway, um, uh, please defer your answer yeah. until the right time. But here's my question. Um, I've been coming here for a long time. Um, and uh, what I, and so I know how um, IMC teaches us to direct our mind during meditation. So following mm -hmm. the breath, noting the characteristics of the breath, distractions come up, note them, let go, return the breath, and so forth. Um, but I don't know much, almost nothing about uh, how how uh, in Vajrayana. Uh, uh, students are taught to direct your mind during mm. meditation. Mm. I, I've heard stories about visualizing deities, and um, I don't really know anything. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's my question. How do you teach people to direct your mind during meditation? In yeah, Vajrayana? yeah. And I can answer that briefly now, you know, just to give kind of an overview. And I think, um, so in addition... In, in the Tibetan tradition, we do have focusing, sometimes we call it focusing meditation, meditations where you focus on an object in order to develop your focus and concentration. The breath is an object that's used. We also, you know, other objects can be used for that focus. And in the Tibetan tradition, one of the objects that's also suggested is a visualized image of a Buddha figure. So for example, Shakyamuni Buddha, the historical Buddha, you focus on the image in your mind's eyes. So rather than the physical sensation of the breath to develop your focus, you're actually trying to maintain focus on the image. So that's one kind of visualization. So we've got focusing meditation, another style of meditation in the Tibetan tradition, sometimes we call analytical meditation or conceptual meditation. And these are probably, strictly speaking, much more uh, contemplation than meditation. So for example, to increase loving kindness and compassion, there are certain practices that you do. For example, a metta meditation in the insight tradition would be one of these contemplations. You imagine a person in front of you, generate these thoughts of loving kindness, maybe repeat some phrases in your mind over and over. So in the Tibetan tradition, we also have a wide range of those kind of meditations that are more conceptual, not so much focusing on a specific object, but kind of trying to generate a certain quality within you, something like compassion or loving kindness, 
or to generate an insight. For example, you can do a meditation on impermanence, which also I think comes up in the four foundations of mindfulness as a way of generating an insight into the nature of reality being impermanent or changing moment by moment. Then in the more kind of Vajrayana style of practice, we visualize these meditational deities and this is kind of a long story, but just very uh, briefly, I, think, I always think of it in terms of like Jungian archetypes. So we say, okay, is it an external being? Is it a quality within myself that I'm projecting as an image, as a way of relating to it? And it's sort of both. So the energy of compassion manifests as Chin Rezig, the Bodhisattva of compassion. And then we do some sort of a visualization where we imagine an exchange of energy or the energy from that Buddha figure, which is no different from our own enlightened energy. So we don't see it as an external deity separate from our own potential for compassion sort of manifesting as this archetype. Because as we know, the, at, like the language of our subconscious is images, right? So we've got the level of gross mind, conceptual thought, words, then there's a subtler level that works through images. So I always think of it as this very skillful way of sort of catalyzing using those, like the subconscious, the subtler level of mind using an image. Because we always have some kind of exchange of energy with that figure. It's not like, oh, that enlightened being is out there and I'm just this pathetic, ordinary being here and all the enlightened energy. Like we always have light rays coming. Sometimes we recite a mantra. So it's kind of a way of awakening that potential compassion energy, for example, within us. So that's kind of the, ba I mean, very quick and dirty. It's a long story, but just the essence of those Vajrayana practices where we actually do those visualizations, that's what's behind it is, you know, kind of a, what do they call it, a light shadow, like we project the shadow, I mean, in Jungian terms, or we even project good qualities onto others, but we couldn't see those in others unless we had that quality within ourselves. So we're doing that deliberately with this image in order to tune into that quality within ourselves. So that's the way I think of it. Again, kind of a long story, but that's the quick answer. That's a great answer. It's just oh, what I wanted to hear. Great. Thank you very, thank you very oh, much. Oh, good, good. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So maybe a... So how about if we take a break? Yes. Uh, <clears throat> then we'll minutes? come back and do some Vajrayana practice. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, yeah, maybe when, when we get back, we can address some of the the ways that terms are used that often creates an un unnecessary level of, of confusion when uh, using, term, using the same terms but actually defining it in different ways will uh, understandably lead to confusion. So hopefully we'll try to sort that out when we come back. And um, we'll put the bowl, that's, would you mind being my lovely assistant?